Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is by Ben Cohen, Flying in America Has Actually Never Been Safer. Then Christopher Mims wrote, If Gadgets Never Needed to Be Charged. Julia Jargon has Food for Thought, The Best Time to Eat Dinner is Early. Then Bob Green has Superstar Romances, Then and Now, and we'll follow that up with an article by Bert Stratton, Wait a Minute, Mr. Postman. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first. Flying in America has actually never been safer. It's hard to pick the scariest part. The phones and teddy bears dropping from the sky, the shirt getting ripped off a teenager's body, or the massive hole in the side of the plane. The harrowing story of the Alaska Airlines flight that narrowly avoided disaster at 16,000 feet is petrifying enough to make you never set foot on a plane again. But there's another way to look at one of the most dangerous aviation events in recent American history. How did hurtling through the sky in a giant metal tube become this safe? The biggest United States commercial airlines have now gone nearly 15 years without a fatal crash which is something of a miracle itself, as there have been more than 100 million flights and 10 billion passengers since then. These days, we barely think about safety when we board a plane. Instead, we think about whether the Wi-Fi will be good enough to check our email. And that's because flying across the sky is safer than walking across the street. Airplanes produce fewer deaths per mile than cars, ferries, trains, subways, or buses and the chances of dying in a crash are roughly the same as getting struck by lightning while reading this sentence. The country's safety record would have sounded not just incredible or inconceivable 15 years ago, but completely insane. I never would have believed it, said William Foss, the former head of the Flight Safety Foundation, a nonprofit advocacy group. This revolution in the sky that is saved countless lives began nearly three decades ago with a surprisingly innovative strategy for improving air safety. It depended on pilots, flight attendants, and dispatchers voluntarily reporting safety issues and admitting their own errors. But first it demanded the entire industry agree to a profound shift in risk tolerance. The old system explained accidents after they happened. This new system was designed to prevent those accidents from ever happening. And it worked. The Federal Aviation Administration's self-reporting programs that encourage airline operators to come forward without fear of retribution help slash the rate of fatal accidents on United States Airlines by such large percentages that the industry had to figure out new ways to measure safety. The United States aviation system has become so amazingly, unexpectedly safe that other industries in the business of fatal risk, from healthcare to artificial intelligence, 
are hoping to bring lessons of the sky back to hospitals and research labs on the ground. It still might not seem that way when you can't stop looking at photos of a brand new airplane with a blown out door plug, or when you read about how passengers escaped a blazing fireball after a runway collision in Japan, or when the world's most valuable aircraft manufacturer is such a mess that you hear Boeing's CEO admit to bone-shaking mistakes. It's also worrisome that aviation officials are warning about the untenable stress and pressures on the nation's air traffic control system. The last fatal accident involving a United States carrier was in February 2009, when a Colgan Air commuter flight crashed outside Buffalo and killed all 49 people on board. The close call suggests only a matter of time before our luck runs out and there's another tragedy. But these nearly catastrophic failures also happen to be a reminder that air safety has been a remarkable American success. It's something I think the traveling public does not fully recognize and appreciate, said Kenneth Quinn, a former senior United States aviation regulator and partner at the law firm Clyde & Company. The anomalies are chilling. They should also be oddly comforting. Since that crash 15 years ago next month, large United States airlines have suffered two fatal accidents that killed two people. Not two fatal accidents a year like the 2000s or two per million flights like the 1960s, just two. Of course, the planes themselves have gotten better, at least when their bolts aren't loose and their door plugs aren't landing in backyards. But this tale of progress isn't merely about jet engines and cockpit technology. The other reason that flying has never been safer is that an industry built around technology and engineering made the audacious decision a few decades ago to dramatically alter human behavior. The reckoning began after a series of accidents in the 1990s when aviation became more safe. If accident rates remained and passenger traffic continued growing, there would have been at least one major jet crash a week by 2015, 1990 projections had shown. And now, if gadgets never needed to be charged. After decades of trying, consumer electronic companies are rolling out a solar technology that mimics photosynthesis in plants. It lets devices charge indoors and in some cases can eliminate batteries entirely. This new light harvesting tech is fundamentally different from the crystalline silicon based panels on rooftops and in solar farms and also from the amorphous silicon cells on the kind of solar powered calculators that were once ubiquitous. This new tech is based on principles first explored by chemists in the 1960s and turned into workable solar cells in the 1980s. It's taken until now for versions of these cells tough enough for consumer applications to be manufactured on the scale required for mainstream adoption. Now companies including Ambient Photonics and Exager are offering solar cells of this kind known as a dye-sensitized solar cell. They are lightweight, bendable, made from common materials, and can be manufactured cheaply in a type of printing process. Sharp is also working on dye-sensitized solar cells, 
although its version is rigid and made with the same equipment used to make LCD panels. At this year's CES, the world's largest trade show in Las Vegas, these thin and often flexible cells are showing up on headphones, earbud cases, walkie-talkie style headsets, keyboards, mice, and TV remote controls. In the future, these solar cells are likely to appear in a number of applications, including door locks, electronic shelf labels, and eventually millions or even billions of interconnected sensors as part of the Internet of Things. These new, dye-sensitized solar cells capture energy in a way that's similar to how plants do it, and as a result, they can use light that falls on them from almost any angle. For indoor light, Marina Freytag, a professor of chemistry at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, has achieved up to 38% conversion efficiency with these cells, a record for the technology. Per square inch, such cells are harvesting more than 10 times as much energy as what was possible with the original silicon cells on pocket calculators. Even in not-so-brightly-lit rooms, dye-sensitized solar cells can capture and convert an amount of energy that is unprecedented among energy harvesting technologies. These competing, and in some cases complementary, technologies include systems that try to sponge energy from radio waves, vibrations, and slight temperature differences in order to power sensors and other devices. Another key to this new generation of solar-powered gadgets is that engineers are getting better at making consumer electronics more efficient in their use of power. The result is that, for example, headphones you have never have to charge from a wall outlet are now possible. Take the second generation of the Los Angeles headphones and Phoenix earbuds from Stockholm-based Urbanista. Shipping later this year, these devices can all top up using light captured both indoors and outdoors using powerfoil solar sensors from Exeger. Depending on how much they use the devices, some people report never having to charge these devices from a wall outlet at all. Getting to this point required squeezing efficiencies out of every part of these devices, says Urbanista product director Martin Salen. One area that was ripe for improvement was power losses between the solar panel on the earbud case and the earbuds themselves. In every electrical system, some energy is lost as electrons are shuttled about. Urbanista's gear and similar offerings from 3M, which is rolling out a walkie-talkie type device that also uses Exeger's solar cells, still contains rechargeable batteries. But for some devices, adding this new generation of solar cells means the end of batteries altogether. Ambient Photonics also recently announced a partnership with Google to produce a device sometime in 2024. A remote would be a logical first offering. Given how often they disappear into couch cushions and the often dim lighting of the rooms they inhabit, a remote might seem like the last gadget you'd want to be solar powered. That was certainly true with older solar cell technology, but the newer kind harvests so much more power that a remote can go from completely dead to usable after just a few seconds of exposure, says Keto Mesal, chief executive of O'Neo, 
which makes low-powered chips for Internet of Things and other devices. Key to this development, he adds, is using an ultra-low-power chip like Onio's. Masile's company is teaming up with Exeger to make remotes and other devices, which will compete with those made with solar cells from Ambient Photonics. Electronics giant Sharp is also showing off its solar-powered remotes at CES this year, and a spokesman for the company says they could eventually show up in a slew of other gadgets. Unfortunately, the one thing that leaps to mind when people hear about solar-powered electronics powering our phones in this way just isn't realistic. Phones are essentially power-hungry supercomputers in our pocket, communicating wirelessly with at least a half dozen different protocols with displays so bright they can be seen in full sunlight. Even with this new technology, powering your average smartphone with nothing but indoor light would require a solar panel the size of a desk. The really transformative use of the high-efficiency indoor solar cells is likely to be in devices that we don't use now because powering them is burdensome. One of the big barriers to adopting more smart home devices, along with other sensors and actuators, is that they all need direct power or batteries that need replacing. So imagine this scenario. You want to add a new light switch to a room. In the past, you would likely hire an electrician to put holes in your wall, run new wiring to a switch box, and install the switch itself. In the future, a solar-powered switch compatible with the new wireless communication standards coming to connected devices could go anywhere you like, in any room of your house, and attach to the wall with little more than some removable adhesive. Multiply that scenario by every possible combination of sensors and switching, switches that could be used in every industrial and commercial setting you can imagine, and you start to get an idea of just how much potential a humble indoor solar cell could unlock. And now, food for thought. The best time to eat dinner is early. Your grandparents were onto something with those early bird dinners. The best time to eat the evening meal is four hours before bedtime. Peak dinner time in America is 6.19 p.m., but it varies from a little after 5 p.m. to after 8 p.m., depending on the part of the country, according to a statistician who analyzed time use data from the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics. Nutritionists vary on when dinner should be served, but agree at least it should be at least two hours before bedtime. The most important factor in the dinner time calculus is melatonin the hormone that signals it's time to sleep, said Sachdhananda Panda, a professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Melatonin, which begins to rise about three hours before we go to bed, also tells the pancreas to cut back on insulin production. If we have a sugar spike after eating late, our body has a harder time regulating blood sugar, Panda says. This could put us at risk of diabetes and other metabolic disorders. For that reason, he says the ideal dinner time is three to four hours before bed. What we eat for dinner matters too. Slower digesting food like meat keeps us full longer. Only in the last hundred years have we seen easily digestible, highly processed food, Panda says, 
explaining that nearly 70% of the calories we eat now come from carbohydrates. The modern American diet makes timing your family dinners even more important. Late night eating can cause the body to store more fat and reduce levels of leptin, the hormone that tells your brain when you're full. According to a 2022 study from researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and the University of Chicago, and a 2018 study from endocrinologists in Japan showed that people with type 2 diabetes who ate dinner after 8 p.m. had poorer blood sugar control. Eating too late can affect sleep quality, which can lead to hormonal fluctuations that can cause weight gain, says A.B. Kimmelin, a spokeswoman for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Going to bed on a full stomach can also exacerbate acid reflux, she says. There are historical reasons for the dinnertime formula, too. The ritual of gathering for dinner began during the hunter-gatherer days when everyone had to be home before dark to get the fire going, Panda says. Hunter-gatherers went to sleep around 9.30 or 10 p.m. as the fire was dying and woke up at dawn. They needed sustenance to keep them going until they could gather some nuts and berries in the morning. Dinner time around sundown continued as people began farming. The diet of hunter-gatherers and early cultures differed from ours. Dinner was high in protein and fiber with a bit of fat, Panda says. It was hard to digest and therefore perfect for a lengthy fast. We also don't move as much as our forebears. Hunter-gatherers and farmers walk 16,000 to 17,000 steps a day, Panda said, with a big spike in activity around dusk as they hurried home. We're no longer out hunting prey all day. Even at work can feel that way at times. The average American now walks just 3,000 to 4,000 steps a day, according to the Mayo Clinic. So some nightly movement, even a brisk walk around the block before or after dinner, can help regulate your blood sugar before your pancreas turns in for the night. Anne Fischel doesn't want anything to get in the way of families eating dinner together. As a director of the Family Dinner Project at Massachusetts General Hospital, which tries to boost the frequency of shared family meals, she knows the mental and physical health benefits for children who regularly eat with their parents or caregivers. And yet American families are eating dinner together less often than they used to due to conflicting schedules. I hate to put any more roadblocks in the way of families gathering for dinner, Fischel says when asked to pinpoint the exact best nightly dinner time. The good news is you don't need to worry about timing dinner to your kids' bedtime. Most children have a higher metabolism than adults and are more active in the evening. Swing by my house around 9 p.m. and you'll see my kids jumping on the couch or playing indoor volleyball. That means their blood sugar isn't as affected by meals, Panda says. If you're going to do the dinner time calculation, count back from the adults' bedtime. There are other benefits to families eating early. A 2021 study found that parents who eat dinner with their families before 6.15 p.m. spend more quality time with their children in the evening. Kimberlin warns against getting too hung up on meal timing. Schedules differ and what works for one might not work for another. Therefore, finding a dinner time that will fit into your schedule is essential and aiming for consistency is helpful, she says. 
In other words, the best dinner time is the one you can stick to. Penny Goffman, a Greenwich, Connecticut entrepreneur, is adamant about an early dinner time for her family, mostly because she and her husband are, in her words, green smoothie people. Timing dinner requires careful planning since their kids, ages 11 and 14, have weeknight sports practices and homework. She maps out the week's meals on the weekends and writes them on a dry erase board so no one has to ask what's for dinner. They manage to eat together no later than 6.30 p.m. Monday through Thursday. By 7 p.m., she says, the kitchen is closed. And now, superstar romances then and now. We've been here before, a nation beguiled by a couple we ourselves have never met but somehow feel that we know. Only the names are different. On a recent morning, I went in search of initials carved into the surface of a bar. I headed for a Chicago restaurant known until its closure in 2016 as the Cape Cod Room. Founded in the 1930s in the Drake Hotel, it was a popular destination for fine seafood dining. The space is now called the Cafe on Oak, open for breakfast only. When I entered, I asked an employee wiping down water glasses whether the initials were still there. Oh yeah, he said. The cafe had kept the long bar intact. There, among a sea of carvings left by long-ago customers, I found the pair I was looking for. M.M. and beneath that, J.D. I was here because, with all the talk of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, I wanted to recall another dazzling female entertainer and another renowned athlete who once enthralled the country in the same way. In 1951, New York Yankee Joe DiMaggio saw a spring training publicity photograph of Marilyn Monroe posing with the Chicago White Sox. At the time, Monroe wasn't nearly as famous as she would become, but DiMaggio was smitten. He arranged for an introduction. In 1952, they met and fell in love. In 1954, they married. By the end of that year, they were divorced. But when their romance was new, according to the hotel's official history, they sat at the bar of the Cape Cod Room and, like scores of customers before them, indulged in the restaurant's tradition of leaving their initials on the wooden surface. Those MMJD initials became one of the room's drawing cards, something that visitors had to see. Renowned as each of them was, as a combination they be somehow became even more fascinating. Miss Swift and Mr. Kelsey are finding out what a magnet for attention that can be. The show business star in the sports world luminary. In 1933, almost a century before the Swift-Kelsey frenzy, the band leader Ben Burney and his orchestra made a hit phonograph record with a title that summed it up. You gotta be a football hero to get along with the beautiful girls. Why does the public become entranced by the love affairs of people to whom they never will speak? It's probably as mysterious to the couples themselves as to the peering in to those peering in from the outside. After Monroe and DiMaggio divorced, she married the playwright Arthur Miller. After five years, they too divorced, and by 1962, Monroe was dead. But love has a funny way of outlining headlines. DiMaggio never remarried, and before Monroe's death, she and he had become close again. 
he took care of the arrangements for her funeral. For decades, he had fresh flowers regularly delivered to a resting place. I looked at the initials on the old bar. The world changes, yet not at all. I tapped my hand on the wood and then left, pausing only to say so long to the fellow still polishing those glasses. And now Bert Stratton's, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. I wanted to repaint a graffiti-tagged United States Postal Service mailbox. It sits in front of an apartment building my family has owned since 1965 in Lakewood, Iowa. I wanted to make it blue again. That simple? This would be like an art project, but it wouldn't be cool or edgy, just the opposite. Call it keeping up the neighborhood. I had hoped the Postal Service would do the job, but I had no such luck. A clerk at the neighborhood branch told me in 2021 that it would take months, not weeks, to clean the box. He said the Postal Service had only one person in northeastern Ohio dedicated to the task. When 2022 came around and the graffiti was still on the mailbox, I wrote the mayor. She wrote back, Our building department has documented the vandalism on this mailbox. Please let your tenant know that we share in his frustration. However, we are prohibited from moving graffiti from mailboxes because they are the property of the United States Postal Service. We will reach out to USPS again to convey the need to fix this problem without delay. Months passed, and I wrote the mayor again. One of my tenants is really annoyed with this situation and wants to buy blue paint. On the other hand, he doesn't want to go to Leavenworth Prison. Ha, anything you folks can do? The so-called tenant was actually me, the landlord. The mayor said no, and I couldn't hold it against her. The feds had her in a no-win situation. I knew she was anti-graffiti. The city occasionally cites me and other landlords for graffiti on our buildings, and we've dealt with it, using wire brushes, graffiti remover, and elbow grease. Last year, I bought a can of Rust-Oleum Deep Blue Spray Paint at Home Depot. I asked one of my employees to do the hit job, a repaint of the mailbox, and he said no way. So I did it myself. I worked at midday, but made sure nobody was walking by while I painted. The shade of blue was slightly off. I should have chosen navy, but it was close enough. I didn't win an art prize, yet here we are in 2024 with a clean blue box. I have the spray paint can in my car in case the graffiti artist strikes again. Keeping up the neighborhood is a work in progress. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.